Good to be gathered with you all this morning, and we want to continue our time in worship together under the preaching of God's Word as we look to that very place where God has spoken to us through the pages of Scripture. And so I would ask you to join me in Psalm 115. Psalm 115, as we're gathered here this morning, I thought we would go to this place in Scripture where God Himself informs how we are to worship Him. Now, the Psalms give to us a inspired book of praise and prayer, how we are to address God in our own worship. And so we are going to look at Psalm 115 this morning. I want to begin by reading this passage to you, set it before your minds and your hearts as we begin. Psalm 115, not to us, O Yahweh, not to us, but to your name give glory. Because of your loving kindness, because of your truth, why should the nations say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. They have noses, but they do not smell. As for their hands, they do not feel. As for their feet, they do not walk. They do not make a sound with their throat. And those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. O Israel, trust in Yahweh. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in Yahweh. He is their help and shield. You who fear Yahweh, trust in Yahweh. He is their help and their shield. Yahweh remembered us. He will bless. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear Yahweh, the small together with the great. May Yahweh give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed of Yahweh who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the heavens of Yahweh, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. It is not the dead that praise Yahweh, and it is none of those who go down to silence, but as for us, we will bless Yahweh. From now until forever, praise Yah. Well, everything is created for a purpose. Perhaps there's some amongst us here who have built things with their own hands or, or sewed together clothing, who have designed and innovated certain objects. And you never go about creating something without it having a designated purpose. And so it is with our God who is the great and all-wise, all-powerful creator. He creates everything with a purpose. Even the rocks, even the, the weeds in the grass, even the mosquitoes that annoy us in summer at camp. Everything has its purpose. And as God's created bears of His own image, each and every one of you has a purpose. You are all created in God's image for the purpose of bringing glory to God. You were created to Worship, to worship God. God designed you and formed you with a heart, a heart that longs to set its affections on something, to know and to love something, and to be satisfied by something, which really is to worship something. And there are many things in this world that call out and bid for your worship. There are things all around us that would draw for your attention, try to gain your desires, try to rule your heart and win your worship. But as we come to the Psalms, we're reminded again and again all through the book of Psalms that God in heaven is the only one to be worshipped. Amen? He alone deserves all honor and praise and glory. As we draw our attention to Psalm 115 this morning, we find the psalmist leading God's people to give glory to God alone. 
This is a psalm of praise and exaltation, lifting high the name of the one true and living God, giving Him His rightful place above all things, before everything else in our lives, that He would be number one. If you look down at the end of verse 18, you see the the ringing note of this psalm, praise to Yahweh, praise to the one true and living God. This is a psalm of praise from God's people. This is also a psalm of lament, of sorrow. There's a tone of desperation and complaint under a time of distress. There are the the mockings and opposition of an unbelievable, unbelieving world all around them as voiced in chapter 2. Words and questions of derision. Where now is your God as to mock those who believe in the Lord? There is the need for God's people to find help and a shield in verses 9, 10, and 11. There's always the threat of death and silence, as in verse 17. All leading the psalmist to write a prayer of petitioning God to rescue, God to be the Savior, God to be the mighty victor, all along coupled with affirmations of confident hope. This is a psalm for lament for weary believers. This is also a psalm of remembrance. Sitting right here in Psalm, as the 115th Psalm between Psalm 113 and 118, this is part of a collection that was called the the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. Six psalms compiled together to celebrate the, the Passover celebration, that great reminder of God's rescue of His people in the Exodus. When God cast out and threw down Egypt under his powerful hand, but passed over and delivered his own people by his sovereign grace and power because of the blood of a Passover lamb, ultimately pointing to Jesus Christ, the lamb of God who would come to the earth to take away the sins of his people. This is a psalm to remind God's people of his great grace and power to save. As a psalm with such a variety of motifs and themes, it is a psalm that can be very helpful in informing our worship, helping us to understand a big view of God and a right view of life and how we are to give God glory alone with all of our lives in every circumstance, to see and to know that God alone is glorious He alone is worthy. He alone can satisfy. And He alone is worthy of all your praise. This is a psalm that compels us to give glory to God alone. In Psalm 115, there are four essential aspects of true worship. Four elements that should be a part of every single one of our lives if we are going to truly give glory and worship to God. The psalmist draws our attention to God's glory. First and foremost, then he goes on to show God's glory in God's sovereignty, God's salvation, and God's praise from his people. These are four aspects that must be part of true, genuine worship. So the first essential aspect of true worship is seeking God's glory. Look there at the first two verses. Not to us, O Yahweh, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth, why should the nation say, where now is their God? These opening lines are an urgent plea for divine intervention, a cry for vengeance against the wicked and vindication for God's people. Verse 2 points to a context when God's people were under a great siege with the nations who represent the enemies of God about the Psalms, making a mockery. They taunt and blaspheme Israel's God, Yahweh. Either He is away, or perhaps He doesn't even exist. 
Where is he? For we do not see him. They ridicule God's people because they see no visible evidence that he is there to protect them. The same questions are found in Psalm 79, verse 10, which was a lament over the destruction of Jerusalem. The enemy had entered the city of God, defiled the temple, and slaughtered the saints of the Lord. And Asaph's cry there was, How long, O Yahweh? How long will you be angry with us forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? You see, he recognized that even the destruction of that city was under the sovereign control of God, that it was actually the discipline of God. It, it was the divine chastisement for their rebellion and their unfaithfulness to the covenant of God. As Asaph prayed, he, he asked God then to forget their sins, to show compassion and bring deliverance so that the nations would no longer be able to say, where is their God? But there in Psalm 79, just like it is here in Psalm 115, the priority of the psalmist is the glory of God, not the escape of our own afflictions, but the glory of God. The prayer in verse 1 here is a remarkable expression of devotion to God. A true worshiper is concerned first and foremost for the honor of the Lord, not the removal of pains or discomforts. It's repeated twice here, not to us, not to us, showing that the deepest desire is not that God would exalt his people in anything, but that he would exalt himself. That God would act for the sake of his own name and reveal the glory of his own radiant majesty. His name here, found as capital L-O-R-D in most English Bibles, is the name Yahweh in Hebrew. It is his name that he revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 from the burning bush. It's his name that means he is who he is. He is the great I am stating that there is no other God, there is none to compare with Him, there is none like Him, and He alone is worthy to be recognized as God. This is His name that shows that He has eternally existed. God had no beginning and will have no end. He is infinite, unchanging, always faithful to exactly who He says He is and what He says He will do. He is totally independent. He's not dependent and reliant on anything. No one needs to give to God that he would have life. Instead, all things that exist need him for their own existence. So he is glory. The only one that is truly glorious is Yahweh, the, the God of creation. And that word in Verse 1, glory is really a weighty word in the Old Testament. Literally, the Hebrew word kavod means to be heavy. And in the law of gravity, something that is heavier than other things has more pull, more force. You can think of the, the spatial orbits in our solar system. Why is the sun the center of our solar system why does every planet why does the moon revolve around the sun because it's greatest in mass it's the heaviest it pulls everything into itself and god is most glorious the sun as the center of the universe as the center of our solar system reflects that god is the center of all things everything that exists revolves around God. God is the most supreme. He is the most preeminent and majestic. God is most glorious. So the only proper response to God then is to be pulled and drawn into His glory, to desire to see more of Him, to know Him more. And that's exactly what captivated the heart of Moses in Exodus 33, when he had gone up to the 
Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments only to come back down and find Israel worshiping a, a golden calf. But then he is called back up the mountain and told by God to continue leading God's people into the promised land. And there, unable to any longer bear that burden himself, he begs God, I pray you, show me your glory. Show me your weightiness. Show me your supremacy. Show me your infinite radiance. Even if it must crush me, I must see your glory. I must know the fullness of who you are. What a prayer that is. That is a model for each and every one of us. That is the heart of one who truly knows God and and worships and loves God to, to be consumed and obsessed with seeing God's glory, with knowing Him more. The Lord's answer back to Moses was to hide him in a cleft of a rock, to allow the back of His glory to pass him by and to proclaim to him His name. In Exodus 34, verses 6-8, Then Yahweh passed by in front of him and called out, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. This was God preaching the glory of God. This was a live sermon from the Holy One on His name and His attributes. His supreme significance and splendor put on full display for Moses to get just a glimpse. And notice how there are two attributes of God that were named there to Moses that are also found in Psalm 115. Psalm 115 verse 1, at the end of verse 1, the reason God is most glorious and worthy of all glory is because He is loving kindness and truth. Two aspects of God's nature that are often paired together in the Old Testament. The first is God's chesed, His covenant love. He delights in giving of Himself and His goodness to those whom He has brought into a saving relationship with Him. It is His unconditional love that He pours upon those who are His own. And in this sense, it is only by grace. Grace alone. Because there is no one in all the earth that would deserve to be loved by the Holy God. All of us alike have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have rebelled and shaken our fists at the One who has created us and given us breath for life. We have sinned in every way. But God, in His grace, has poured out His love on unworthy sinners. It is His love that Ephesians 1.4 says, He set upon His people before the foundation of the world. Apart from anything that they have done or any worthiness in themselves, He simply chose to set His love on them because He loves them in and of Himself. God saves, God loves His own people to the praise of His glorious grace. The second attribute there is God's truth. His unwavering faithfulness. His inability to lie, to mislead, or to deceive. His absolute loyalty to who He says He is and what He says He will do. There is no changing, no shadow of shifting with God. And this is good news for those who have heard His Word and heard about His love. He is absolutely and eternally true. There's no more sure way for anyone to pray than to pray on the basis of who God is for the things that God has said He will accomplish. To pray on the basis of God's loving kindness and truth for the sake of His own name. This is the 
most certain prayer we could ever pray. God, not to us, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness and truth. This is the prayer that Moses prayed to save Israel from their destruction, inevitable destruction for worshiping a golden calf. God, not for the sake of this stiff-necked people, but for your name's sake, rescue, relent, show pity. This is the same prayer that King Hezekiah also prayed when the Assyrians attacked Jerusalem. But now, O Yahweh, our God, I pray, save us from this hand that all kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. You, O Yahweh. God is most glorious. The greatest pursuit of any one of His creatures is to pursue, to seek after the glory of God. The second essential aspect of true worship in this psalm is declaring God's sovereignty, His power and rule over all things. Look at verse 3. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. And this is an immediate response to those mockings and scoffings in verse 2. With God's people now answering those scoffers with one voice, with full conviction, responding with confidence, not giving an inch to the atheist. You wonder about our God, verse 2. Let us tell you about our God, verse 3. For starters, our God is in the heavens. He doesn't dwell on earth. He doesn't need a home made by human hands. He is not held together or or contained by any earthly house. He is not confined by the limitations of a physical or mortal body. Our God is in the heavens. He is spirit. He is omnipresent. He is infinite. Far greater than all of us. He is ruler on a heavenly throne with complete control over all the earth. In summary, He is God, and we are not. Our God also does whatever He pleases. He works, He makes, He orchestrates all things according to His perfect will. In all of His goodness, in all of His holiness, in all of His righteousness and justice, He does everything that He wants according to what delights Him alone. There's nothing to restrain Him. Nothing can hold him back. He is the God who, who called everything into existence out of nothing, simply with the power of his word. Day one, God spoke and the light began to shine. Day two, God spoke and waters were spread out from shore to shore. In day three, he spoke and the land set boundaries for the waters and began to produce plants and trees. And day Four, he spoke, and the sun, moon, and stars began to govern day and night. In day five, he spoke, and fish and birds filled the sky and the water. Day six, he spoke, and there came a life. First, animals and creatures of every kind. Then he created and formed you and I in his own image. After his own likeness, God created everything that exists by the simple power of his word and he declared all creation very good god is the great creator in summary this verse declares the absolute freedom of god to do whatever he pleases there is no limitation in his power nor is there any limitation in his right to rule and reign as creator he He owns all things. He is Lord. He is Master. He dictates exactly what will take place in everything that He has created. God answers to no one. He's not obligated to do what you and I want Him to do. Though at times He is merciful to do just that. God is King. God is on His throne. God is alone, sovereign. Then having declared the sovereignty of the one true God, His people also declare the impotence of false gods. In verses 4 to 8, there's a strong contrast made here between Yahweh of heaven 
and the idols of earth. In verse 3, God is the one who does, works, or makes whatever He pleases. He, he is the maker of heaven and earth, verse 15. But in verse 4, the idols are the works of a man's hand. They are the creation of men who make them, verse 8. Well, God is the all-powerful and sovereign creator. The gods of man on the earth, the idols created with images in images of creatures are the works of hands created by men with materials that God Himself had to create in the first place. Look at verses 4 to 7. Their idols are silver and gold. The works of man's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. They have noses, but they do not smell. As for their hands, they do not feel. As for their feet, they do not walk. They do not make a sound with their throat. The pagans created little images and statues. They even overlaid them with gold and silver to give them the semblance of greater value, greater worth. They fashioned a God in their own imagination. And the folly of creating a God in your own image, in your own likeness, is self-evident. The thing is lifeless, incapable of anything. There's no sound, no sight, no hearing, no smell, no caring or walking. And the emphasis here from the psalmist is that absolutely nothing comes from them. They are lifeless, breathless, motionless objects. And the fool proclaiming to be wise with a God that is visible right in front of them becomes foolish. They bow down and worship a creation of their own hands. Such a satire on idolatry is also written by the prophets. Isaiah, in chapter 44, he cries out against the idols that were beginning to creep into the nation of Israel. In verses 9, he begins, those who form a graven image are full of them, futile. Their desirable things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know so that they will be put to shame. Who has formed a god or cast a graven image to no profit? Behold, all, the, all his companions will be put to shame. The craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them be in dread. Let them together be put to shame. The man crafts iron into a cutting tool. He does his work over the coals, forming it with hammers and working it with his powerful arm. He also gets hungry, and he himself has no power. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another crafts wood. He extends a measuring line, measures it out. He outlines it with a stylus. He draws it out. He makes it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the glory of man, so that it may sit in a house in order to cut cedars for himself. He takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself. He has to go out and plant the very wood that he's going to use as his own materials. He plants a fir, the rain makes it grow, then becomes something for a man to burn. He takes one of them and warms himself. He kindles a fire to break, bake bread. He also works to produce a god out of that very same tree, the very same wood. And he falls down and worships that idol. This is the, the foolishness of worshiping idols, worshiping gods that truly do not even exist. Jeremiah declaims the same ridicule in, in chapter 10 of his prophecy. One of the most vivid examples of this is probably in 1 Kings chapter 18. In the battle on Mount Carmel between Elijah and his God, Yahweh, with the false prophets and that power, supposed power of Baal. And there, Elijah calls all the prophets to come up the mountain and, and pray to their God. Pray to Him and to ask Him to bring down fire from heaven to consume the altar. 
And after praying to Baal for, for hours until noon, there was nothing. Nothing. Not a voice. Not a, not a spark. Nothing. The people began to tremble and, and trudge around the, the altar. They begin to shout louder. They begin to even gash themselves with swords and lances after a pagan practice. But as they cried upon this supposed Lord named Baal, there was nothing. And Elijah mocked them with a bit of holy sarcasm. He called out, saying to them, try crying out a little louder. Perhaps he is occupied. Maybe he's busy. Maybe he's away on a a journey. Maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he's asleep and needs to be awoken. Then, to demonstrate the omnipotent hand of God's powerful being, Elijah prays once, O Yahweh, answer me that this people may know that you alone are God. Immediately, fire came down from heaven. After drenching the altar, the sacrifice, even filling the trenches with water, fire licked it all up. Everything was consumed by the fire of God, and all the people saw it and immediately fell on their faces saying, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. And that's the outcome of any God versus Yahweh. Perhaps you think, well, Jeremy... There's no such thing as this kind of pagan worship today. People aren't creating idols and statues and bowing down to them like they would in those days. Well, you could see a Buddhist temple somewhere and you might see exactly that. But I assure you that people all around us, even our own hearts, are pulled towards falling down and worshiping things of creation anything that would take the place of God in your life, anything that would rob God from all your love, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, robbing God of of all your devotion and allegiance to Him is a idol. Whether that be money, sex, power in the earth, possessions, that becomes an idol when it takes the place of God and you begin to put your trust in in it. So verse 8 concludes this point with a serious warning. Everyone who makes them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. And the idea is if you carve, if you create, if you bow down to a, an image, an idol that you have created in your own life, you are going to become as useless and worthless as that idol. One commentator states, false worship is not innocent, but demoralizing and ultimately the worshipers will perish together with their perishable idols. See, idolatry is is not okay. It's not loving to allow people just to go continue on. You worship your God and I'll worship my God. The psalmist reminds us that there is a devastating end for all those who would worship idols. As Romans 1 teaches us, the wrath of God is poured out upon all those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness as they turn from worshiping the, and serving the Creator to worship and serve images made in the likeness of creatures. God's wrath hands them over first to all kinds of perversions, then to a homosexual agenda, then to a debased mind where they are unable to think Rightly, good becomes evil and evil becomes good. And then in the end, God will call all idolaters to judgment. They will stand before Him. And perhaps in that day, they will call upon their gods, rescue us, deliver us. But those who cannot speak, those who cannot hear, those who cannot walk, those who cannot make a sound with their throat, will be able to do nothing to deliver those people from God's wrath in that day of judgment. So we must declare God's sovereignty, God's 
rule, God's right to reign, God's power and dominion over all things must be central in our lives. The third aspect of true worship is trusting God's sovereignty. Or sorry, trusting God's salvation. And this is an important note right after considering the, the power and glory of God. Then now we would peer into this message of, of salvation, of deliverance, of rescue. Look at the call to turn to God, the one true and living God in verses 9 to 11. O Israel, trust in Yahweh. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in Yahweh. He is their help and shield. You who fear Yahweh, trust in Yahweh. He is their help and shield. In contrast to those who trust the things that they have made with their own hands, the psalmist commands God's people to trust in God alone, to trust in the Lord. This is an exhortation to to faith in the one true God, to flee from all forms of idolatry and to give yourself, to put your rest, to put all that you are in the hands of Yahweh, the Lord of heaven and earth, to stop relying on human wisdom and abilities, to stop seeking the pleasures of the world, to give God all of your allegiance, to give Him all of your heart, all of your mind and soul and strength to cling to Him and Him alone, to abandon all those things that would rob Him of His rightful place. In the Psalms, the object of one's faith is often pictured as ground that you stand upon, a foundation for your feet, and there's the muck and mire of sin that sinks and pulls you in. There's the quicksand of of folly that vanishes from beneath you. And then there is the, the blowing wind and breathlessness of idols. All that cannot hold anything up and will ultimately lead to a great fall. But then there is faith in God described as solid ground, a rock, a mighty fortress, a place where your feet can be firmly planted. And, and this call to Trust and have faith in God is a call to the greatest place of security and refuge one could ever find. Ver- verses 9 to 10, 9, 10, and 11 promises repeatedly that God is an able Savior. He is mighty to save, He is a help and a shield, He is the deliverer and protector. As helper, the Lord comes to His people and does for them what they are not able. Like a father who comes again to pick up his child. Like a a coach who comes alongside the the player and shows him how to do it right again. God is, is the helper of all those who seek Him and He is able to come alongside and, and do what you cannot do for yourself. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, says Psalm 46, verse 1. In this psalm, His help rescues His people from distress. He meets them in their captivity and pulls them out of their hopeless estate, rescuing them, pulling them out, delivering them from dangers, and it is Yahweh who saves and Yahweh alone. As a shield, then, He is a a strong defense surrounding His people as an impenetrable wall, covering them and protecting them from every attack, every threat, from every angle. As an as a army marching out into the battlefield, God is a shield to protect them, showing us, reminding us that He is a divine warrior, able to strengthen and uphold all of those who trust in Him. Is the one who comes to us. He is the one who calls people to trust in Him alone. The psalmist further describes God's saving work as blessing. Blessing. Look down at verses 12 to 13 and you see the repeated promise that He will bless. He will bless all those who turn in faith to Him. 
This is the blessing of God's undeserved favor. The blessing of His grace and love in the experience of true happiness and peace. Not the happiness of the fleeting pleasures of this world. Not the happiness you feel when you've had a good day. But the deep inward happiness that comes from being in a right relationship with the one who created you. True happiness. A transcendent joy. The first words God spoke to mankind at creation were blessing. He blessed man whom he created in his image and called them to a perfect communion with him forever. But when sin entered the world, there came a curse. That original blessing that God had brought us into relationship with him as his own image bearers was now tarnished by a curse. The curse of disease, decay, and death. The curse of pain. The curse of thorns and thistles. The curse of spiritual deadness. And the curse ultimately of separation from God. Sin brought about a curse. But blessing is promised in God's covenant of salvation to all those who will place their trust in Him. When the devastating consequences of sin will be removed and we will finally enter again into that perfect communion with God. In Genesis 12, verses 2-3, to God promised blessing to Abraham and to all the families of the earth through Abraham's seed. Ezekiel 36 promises spiritual blessing to all those who will receive the Spirit of God in the New Covenant. And ultimately, these promises pointed to Jesus Christ, who is the promised seed, the the son of the, the woman, the son of Eve, and the descendant of Abraham, the one who would bring his people back to God to remove that separation that was created by sin, accomplishing redemption, and finally reversing the curse. True blessing is promised to all those who enter the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. Those who are poor in spirit. Those who mourn over their own sin. Those who are lowly and humble. And those who hunger and thirst for a righteousness not of their own, but the righteousness of Christ to be credited to them. Blessed are those who are saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Look at verses 14 to 15. We see a a priestly prayer. Here's a, a part of the scripture where the priest would stand up before the people and pronounce a benediction, pronounce a blessing on the congregation. May Yahweh give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed of Yahweh who made heaven and earth. Here those who trust God, those who have faith in the one true and living God are brought before the presence of the Holy One and petitioned to God to be blessed, that they would receive the covenant promises, that they, their children become as numerous as the stars of heaven and the sand on the seashore that they would flourish on the earth, being fruitful and multiplying, returning back to that original blessing that God had created them for. And again, this points to the great high priest, Jesus Christ, as the only one who is truly able to stand before God on our behalf, the eternal Son, who became a man as a mediator to represent sinners like us, to go before God to make atonement, to make a sacrifice, to pay the penalty of sin, not of our own, because he was or not of his own, because he was perfect, blemished, unblemished, spotless, like a perfect lamb led to the slaughter. And he laid down his life on the cross as the final and perfect sacrifice and as the final and perfect great high priest. And he brought his people to God, satisfying all the punishment that we deserve, satisfying the wrath of God that was directed upon his people for their sin. 
He died and paid the wages of sin in full. And he went to the grave, but he was not cursed forever, was he? He didn't remain in that curse. Three days later, he rose from the dead, proving that he had defeated sin, defeated death, defeated the power of hell, and he rose victorious, bringing salvation for his people. And as those who simply trust, trust in the Lord, not by what you do, not by who you are, or anything that you can accomplish, simply by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, turning to him and you shall be saved. Have you repented of your sin and turned to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, then sin's curse remains upon you. But if you have, Christ has swallowed up all that curse for us. Lastly, we come to the fourth essential aspect of true worship. Having sought God's glory and God's glory alone, having declared God's sovereignty and His right to rule in in all things, and considering His glorious salvation, His salvation of grace and mercy through the Lord Jesus Christ, the only thing that is left to remain is to sing God's praise. And that's how this psalm ends in verses 16 to 18. The heavens are the heavens of Yahweh. The earth He has given to the sons of men is not the dead that praise Yahweh, is none of those who go down to silence, but as for us, we will bless Yah. From now until forever, we will praise Yahweh. This is the congregation now responding in adoration and exaltation to the God that they have just considered, the God of all glory and sovereignty and salvation. And again, that last line that previously launched us into this verse, the petitioning God who made heaven and earth is now exalted for His ownership over all things. Not to us, O Yahweh, not to us, but to Your name give glory. We are entrusted with this earth. It says there in verse 16, God owns it. The heavens are His. The earth and all that fulfills it is His. But He has given us a stewardship. A stewardship to do what we were created to do. To do what we have given as a purpose in our lives. To worship and bring glory to God alone. There is the contrast here of those who have come to life by faith in the one true and living God with those who remain dead and will go down in silence. Those who trust in idols, those who give their affections and heart to idols will find that they have no voice. They have no ability to lift up a praise to anything in the end. But as for us, psalmist says, we will bless Yahweh. From now until forever, we will enter the bliss of eternal glory. There will be no end to the praises of God's people. There will be no end to the worship of His redeemed saints. From now until forever, we will sing hallelujah. The end of verse 18. Praise the Lord. Praise Yahweh. Hallelujah. Give praise to Him because He is worthy. There's a glimpse into the heavenly worship given to us in Revelation. I want to close by by reading this for you as you consider just how worthy God is and how glorious it will be to, to be in the presence of the Mighty One, the Holy One, to worship and praise Him forever. Revelation 4. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. He was sitting like 
a jasper stone, a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments, crowned with golden crowns on their heads. And out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and all around the throne, the four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first creature was like a lion, the second creature like a calf, the third creature like a face like that of a man. The fourth creature was like a flying eagle, and the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings full of eyes around within, and day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come, the Eternal One. And they all sat down and bowed before the throne, casting their crowns to His glory, saying, Worthy are You, O Lord, and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things. Because of Your will, they existed and were created. It's there on that day that God will finally receive the glory due to His name and the worship of His people no longer be marred by our own sin and weakness, but there will be an infinite glory forever and ever. Let us pray. Lord God, we, we must confess that we have not given You the glory that You deserve with every aspect of our lives. Father, every time we disobey you, we rob you of glory. Every time we long for things more than you, we rob you of your glory. God, I pray that you would remind us again of who you are, that you are the glorious eternal one who has called everything into existence by the power of your word, and that you alone are worthy of worship. You alone deserve our praise, our, our honor, our reverence and love. Father, I pray that you would even now be bringing more people to worship you. pray that you would increase our knowledge of you so that we would love and cherish you more. Father, forgive us of our sins. Forgive us of the way we rob you of glory and worship things that are not God. And pray that you would do your work amongst us and make us true worshipers who worship you in truth and in spirit, who worship you with every part of our lives. To your name be glory, not to us. To your name be glory alone. And we pray this. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, amen.